sadness is sort of that big stop sign in our life. It just says, hold up. It's time to stop moving forward, stop trying all these things and pause and reflect and think. And, and, and in there is creativity and coming up, problem solving, coming up with new things. You know, the negative words we use might be rumination. We ruminate about something, we go over it and over it and over it. And that's very aversive, but that is our mind trying to solve something and come to a new understanding. I'm Helen Russell, author, journalist, and happiness researcher. And each week I'll be talking to a special guest about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. I'm thrilled to share that my book, How To Be Sad, is now on sale wherever you buy your books in the US. You can find it on bookshop.org, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you like to buy books, eBooks, or audiobooks. And I'd love to hear what you think. Nathaniel Herr is Associate Professor of Psychology at American University in Washington, D.C., and an expert in emotional regulation. He has a deep understanding of sadness and its value, as I discovered when I interviewed him for my book, How to Be Sad. We last spoke pre-COVID, so I was keen to talk to him today for a deep dive into regulating our emotions, how to cope during a global pandemic, plus why acknowledging and allowing for all of our emotions is key now more than ever. He says, we try to fight sadness, to lessen discomfort as a society, almost on autopilot. Only by doing so, we're all worse off. So Nathaniel Herr, I'm really looking forward to talking more about this today. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. So I would love to kick off, this is a podcast about how to be sad, by asking you from your perspective and your experience, why does sadness matter? Well, I think it's an important question because when I ask uh, my students in a class, say, about what what's the value of sadness, um, almost invariably the first uh, thing that a student will raise their hand and say is, well, without sadness, we wouldn't know what happiness is, which I always, I really dislike that answer. And I think it's not, it really isn't the right answer in, in the end because sadness isn't just a contrast with happiness or something. And you know, we shouldn't just view it through the lens of being the opposite of happiness or or something like that, the backdrop to happiness. I think sadness has its own uh, important value in our life. And then we, though it might be an unpleasant, uncomfortable emotion, one that we don't want to have all the time, it's still one that has uh, an important value in our world. Uh, When you think about what happens when we're sad and why we get sad, it's really uh, an emotion that happens when uh, we lose something we care about or we are stuck in some way where we've been trying maybe to achieve something and we just keep getting we fail at that or or we're even getting punished for our attempts uh, whatever that might be and sadness is sort of that big stop sign in our life it just says hold up it's time to stop moving forward stop trying all these things and pause and reflect and think and 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 in there is creativity and coming up problem solving coming up with new things you know the negative words we use might be rumination we ruminate about something we go over it and over it and over it and that's very aversive but that is our mind trying to solve something and come to a new understanding. With happiness, it's sort of the opposite, right? When we're happy, it's like what you did just worked, so do that. There's only one solution. It's what thing you just did. It's reward circuitry in our brain saying, go, go, go. That was awesome. Keep doing that. There's no creativity there. I'm not saying that it's bad, but it's not a, an emotion that tends to generate lots of new ideas and new thoughts because it's saying, hey, that worked more of that. Whereas that didn't work, now what leads to an infinite number of possibilities? And our brain has to toss those around. Not always pleasant, not always wonderful, 
but very valuable, certainly. I think that's so interesting, the idea of thinking about it as a creative problem-solving state of mind. And I think maybe people don't often think about it, it being a positive place to to think about what happens next when we are feeling sad. But what about the idea of, you know, the tortured artist? I mean, that's very depressing to think that we all have to be miserable to be able to produce anything great, any great art. I know you're probably talking more generally sort of in life, but how do you feel about that cliche? I think it's an important question. Some people speculate, you know, we should, should we even have antidepressant medications? Imagine what we're robbing the world of, you know, these great artists, great writers, great creators did all this work and we know that they're miserable. And it's almost like we say, well, we want to, we want people to be miserable because they made these wonderful things that we all can appreciate. And I think it's a reasonable uh, a question to have of, of, is it, does it need to have happen through that type of pain? I, I guess I think of it as certainly depression, which is our, you know, when sadness goes on and on and on and, and, and is all encompassing, we have a term, right? Depression. And that's something that we want to um, try to prevent and, and not have people be in. But those moments of sadness, days, weeks, maybe even periods of time that, that bound on that depression, but aren't a lifelong experience are probably ones that we can tolerate in, in, in the society. And it's okay. And having those moments of creativity coming from sadness is really Sadness is just a word for maybe struggle or challenge or trying to, you know, hitting your head against the wall to get something to work. It's it's hard in the moment, but then it can lead to that those breakthroughs. So I don't know. I think yeah, it's it's okay for our, our, our artists to experience sadness, but not chronic depression that lasts years. That's something I would certainly say we should be working to try to prevent for folks. And when we last spoke, it was pre-pandemic, those heady days. And I'm very interested in, from your perspective and in your work, how you think people have been coping during the pandemic. I, I feel as though from, from my work and my research, I've noticed a slight pushback perhaps against toxic positivity. But there is still, I think, a reluctance around sadness and to acknowledge the deep losses that we have all experienced. How's it been for you? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's been such a strange, obviously, experience, and that everyone's been going through this simultaneously. Um, I, I don't know. It's almost surreal. It's been hard in the moment to really capture the feeling of of it, you know. And and that I think what I've seen is people are still trying to live their lives in a regular way, but at least for a while, with with one or both hands tied behind their backs, and so it cut off. A lot of opportunities and unfortunately i mean for me i study emotions but also i study emotions particularly in the context of interpersonal relationships and that's what the pandemic hurt the most which was yeah you could still have hobbies you could still read books you could still play video games you could still watch netflix but you couldn't go out and see people and meet new people and i mean you could it just limited that so much and to me the way our emotions and our interpersonal relationships intertwine is so important that was where it really hurt and yet not everyone thinks of it that way. And so it might have seemed, I mean, there's even jokes, of course, at first, of you know, this was a perfect excuse to get out of all these arrangements I didn't want to do. And But over time, as it drug on and on and on, has still continues to affect that. I do think we've seen this detriment to interpersonal relationships um, that has an effect of just dragging down positive energy, positive emotion which I still don't think is exactly opposite of depression. It doesn't mean people became sad, but I think we're lacking the like those exclamation points in life for many people, which are important to, to get you through those sad times is to remember, oh, but there's all these other great times as well. Mm. So lacking that has made it, yeah, a real slog. <laughs> um, I wonder how your students have coped. I find it so interesting that even, you know, your students and, and they are a self-selecting group who are interested in 
obviously psychology, but that that they were still sort of seeing sadness as a necessary flip side to happiness. In the UK, there's been a lot about how students have missed out on the the typical student or college experience because of lockdown and because of social distancing. How have your students held up? All, all in all, I'd say well, um, in that they can adapt to this life. But I do think they're experiencing a loss and that sense of something missing. Um, it de- each student depends on which students we're talking about in some ways. The, the, for my undergraduate students, the incoming students, the freshmen, for them, it was a particularly un- very not ideal situation in that they didn't even really get to transition into college. And so they're still in their hometowns and not getting to have this moment of, you know, beginning college for a lot of people in America, at least, is a, a time when you can try on new identities and new things and, you know, get away from the influence of the person you've always been. If you lived in the same hometown for a long period of time, so locked into that identity. And so I think they just you know, didn't have that opportunity. And so that was a really hard thing for them. I guess you could go on to each student, each type of student, and it's it's a different thing. You go to seniors and they're missing out on the last time they could have with their, in their, uh, with their friends. You go to the graduate students. I had a, a new PhD student who I've only met once at the interview we had two Februarys ago and I interviewed her and I've not seen her in her entire first year. And that's just at an academic level. Again, um, the a lot of what happens in academia and research isn't necessarily just a single, I mean, not necessarily, it certainly isn't a solitary profession. You don't, you might imagine, you know, Albert Einstein working alone in his office late at night or something, but it's really a collective of people who share ideas and talk. And a lot of great ideas happen through just sitting in a room with somebody and talking about something else. And then it's, you know, the conversation kind of drifts to your research and all of a sudden there's great cross-pollination of ideas. It's about being in an being in a building next to somebody who studies something completely different from you, talking to them down the hallway, and suddenly you've generated this new third idea. That is just lacking when it comes to creative creativity and research, um, especially for the graduate students who are not, they've not yet entered into a community of researchers that they know. I think that's been a really hard thing. Again, coming back to that lack of that networking aspect of things that has really been a detriment. I find it really interesting as well that we know now that you know the brain continues developing uh, into the mid-20s. I think it's around 24, isn't it, that they say now? Whereas I think we used to think you were fully formed, you had your ideas, you had your sort of emotional regulation in place by perhaps 18. So I guess a lot of your students are studying this in an intellectual level, but they are also still growing. And I'd love for you to explain kind of in layman's terms emotional regulation, because I think it's something that's so fascinating and so few of us are taught about it or even taught it growing up. So please, for the layperson. No problem. Yeah, I think it's a new enough idea, or at least it's one that's been taken in a lot of disparate ideas and can can turn it into this uh, concept of emotion regulation that in the last decade or so, it's really taken off. But at the basic level, emotion regulation is all the things that we do to try to increase or decrease the various emotions that we experience. There's been a lot of research prior to this, you know, going back 40 years or so, people like Paul Ekman, who's got some notoriety and fame, uh, he had, he was behind the show Lie to Me, if if those who know that show about reading people's emotions and faces. But he, he, his research and others sort of identified these basic, six basic emotional states that are shared internationally, cross-culturally, that can be recognized by People, tribesmen in New Guinea can recognize USC graduate students' faces of happiness, sadness, fear, surprise, disgust. 
So we have these core emotional states and many of them actually, except for happiness, are kind of aversive, ones that we're trying to diminish or at least not have as much as possible. When we get anxious, we want to try to do things to get rid of that anxiety usually. And that's where emotion regulation comes into play, I think. Usually, for most people, emotion regulation takes the form of adaptive behavior, things you do to, to calm down or, or amp up if you were trying to amp up to, to get through those times. But then the reason psychology has taken such an interest in it is that oftentimes the decisions we make to regulate our emotions or the automatic processes that occur in our bodies to regulate emotions go askew and become uh, what we might call, say, an anxiety avoidance, where it becomes much more extreme and someone who's trying to regulate their uh, emotions around giving public speeches is not showing up or or, uh, making excuses to get out of having to speak in public. And then it becomes what we would call social anxiety. When it comes to sadness, again, people are going to want to try to do things to regulate sadness. Certainly, there's a lot of folks who look into how substance abuse and sadness can, can go together, where someone might try to regulate those feelings of sadness through using drugs or alcohol or other other substances to uh, to try to get rid of that sad feeling. But it isn't just something that's addictive in that way. There can also be other all sorts of problematic behaviors that people uh, engage in to try to get away from that sadness, which is why um, one of the things that have spawned from emotion regulation research is a big uptick in acceptance-based therapeutic approaches. Rather than trying to get away from your emotion or regulate your emotion through doing things. It's more about changing your relationship with the emotion, saying, hey, you know, take sadness with you. Try to be separate from it. You aren't your sadness. Because you're feeling sad, it isn't going to be that way forever. Something, try to get it almost outside of you so you can look at it and then take it with you. Do the things you want to do in your life, but accept it rather than trying to push it away, get rid of it, deny it, all these other things. And that's where, so that emotion regulation can be very adaptive, but at times it can be very harmful to us. And that's where acceptance approaches of our emotions come into play. And so we've talked before, I know, about as well as going to busyness or trying to numb out those feelings with substances, that those of us who struggle to regulate our emotions usually experience this in in three ways. The first I think we talked about was sensitivity to cues, so getting the emotions sooner than others. The second was intensity, getting the emotions at a more intense level. And the third is taking longer to return to a baseline or normal. Can you describe a little bit more about what that baseline should look like and how we should learn this in childhood? but many of us don't. Yes, absolutely. So this comes from um, research on a condition called borderline personality disorder, which is where it was first looked at. But I think as time has gone on, people recognize it more broadly um, and that it's not just in that one disorder. So what anything I'm saying here isn't, doesn't, wouldn't, if, it, if it sounds familiar, it doesn't mean, oh, you should look into getting treatment for borderline or something like that. But yes, exactly. Um, emotion regulation, some of the theories there around how we regulate emotions differently from one another that some people right are more sensitive to those cues that come up and that they essentially to have an emotion occur it's usually triggered by something that happens in our environment or could be in in our minds uh, something we think about or, or, or are reminded of like anything with sensitivity like hearing some people can hear very faint sounds and some people it takes it to be much louder so they can hear it This could be true also of our emotions in that some people get that emotional reaction starts to happen at a lower level of of stimuli, you know, a a smaller interpersonal insult or a um, or a more ambiguous uh, interaction they have with somebody might trigger those types of emotional things a little bit earlier. 
And then right, that middle portion of having a stronger reaction, how intense that emotion experience, emotional experience will get um, seems to vary from person to person. Some people tend to have more muted emotions. Others can have very strong, extreme reactions in their emotions. And then lastly, that part you talked about having a longer return to baseline, how long it takes to get back to that kind of homeostatic, low or non-emotional level can vary a lot. So for some people, that can be moments and others, it could take much, much longer. And we're born with that or that's something that we are sort of socialized into? At this point, the research looks is more pointing towards something that we're born with or or at least very early on, um, it, it's sort of set in motion. It doesn't mean it's the same throughout our lives, but it, it tends to be something that at minimum, it's something more like a personality trait that to change it substantively would take a long period of time of really active working on it. And it isn't doesn't tend to be the target of treatment to change those sort of facts of someone's life. So more as the coping with that, you know, it's more about adapting to that. This is your reality. This is the hand you've been dealt. Let's work with that rather than try to, you know, turn it in and get new cards or something. So so it is viewed much more as a, as a trait, something that we'd be born with and is a long lasting thing. I have a redheaded son, so I have a vested interest in this. It's fascinating. <laughs> and so parents, normally then it's part of their job to give the appropriate feedback to children so that they learn in childhood, you know, what is an acceptable response. And I know that, uh, I know belatedly, I'm not sure that people knew when we were growing up, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, but if a kid says, I'm sad, and a parent says, no, you're fine, that's not helpful, is it? We should acknowledge and and go with what they are, you know, putting forward as their emotion. Is that right? I, I think so. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't profess to be, uh, you know, and, and having become a parent, uh, you know, re- relatively recently, a lot of this stuff I throw, I'm like, oh, you know, should I throw this all out now that I'm seeing it in reality? But no, I do think that, that that is right. That in order, if at least if the goal is to have a child be in tune with their emotional states, to um, accept those emotional states, to let them in, if that's the goal, I mean, I guess we could debate whether we want that in the society. And there have been certainly eras in human history where, that was not the goal. And so, uh, you know, the goal was to push it all down and not make sure, make sure nothing popped out as much as possible. But personally, at least I can say I would I would advocate that as saying, yeah, trying to give appropriate feedback, listening to the child, looking at the child's cues and not going with you're fine or this isn't happening or anything like that. It sends a mixed message. It sends a confusing message. The child may have a hard time then being able to read their own, you know, a lot of this stuff comes up physiologically. We feel sadness in our body. We feel anxiety in our body and we start to misread those cues or, or think that or doubt that we're right, especially for a child who's going to listen to what the adult's saying. And the more that confusion happens, that is an underlying factor in some of the emotional disorders that we look at, you know, in adults. It seems that it is likely that that kind of what we call invalidating early environment where a parent was really invested in telling the child that their feelings were wrong or that they just weren't having the feelings they said they were having chronically and it's happening over and over again um, can lead to, to some significant problems for some children into adulthood. So yeah, trying to be a, a mirror. You really want to be a mirror for your child, even when it's hard. Here, here, okay, here's what I could say. Um, if I'm upset, if I'm angry and I say to you like, hey, I'm a little bit angry and you just sort of blow me off, uh, you're fine. What am I going to do next? Like, what's my next move? Is it just to go, oh, I'm probably fine? Or am I like, you know what? I want you to hear this. I'm going to have to turn up the volume a little bit. So now I'm like, no, listen, I'm not just annoyed. You're not hearing me. Like, I'm pretty angry here. And if you're again like, look, it's fine. I'm going to amp it up even more. 
until I get to a volume that you're going to have to hear. I'm going to like force you to hear it. I think that that same little dynamic can play out with children and that for some, if they are like, oh, I think I'm annoyed, but my parents saying I'm not, it's not like they're doing it intentionally, but the body's going to start to have to get more exaggerated to draw out, to, to let the parent know, no, this is what anger looks like. This is what sadness looks like. And then usually that's not what we really want as parents. Isn't there also another route that the child can feel shame? You can feel like, oh, well, I'm wrong. And that's hugely harmful as well. So if we could accept and tolerate the full range of emotions to start with, we'd probably be better off. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And by um, giving those emotions, it might feel like it's going the opposite direction. They're sad. So if I like talk to them about being sad, won't that amplify the sadness? But it really can have the counter by acknowledging it, by entertaining it. It doesn't have the, the need for the emotion sort of goes away and it's going to come back down to that baseline in that the child says, OK, I'm, I, I was hurt, I was sad, and now I can go back to not being sad because there's nothing more to communicate. It's The message has been received. And once the person, once the child or, or adult believes that the world around has responded, the emotions need to, to exist sort of goes down and that's going to diminish it. It's so interesting. So I have I have two questions on that, really. I wonder first whether the experience of being a parent and knowing all this in theory, does that help in practice? Or I I certainly feel as though there's still that inclination, even though I know all of the logic and the, and the research on it to say, oh, you know, don't cry or get up again. And it's hard to stop yourself sometimes. And then also, I wonder if you don't have that in childhood, how do you get it as an adult? So I'll ask you first, how's your parenting? <laughs> you know, it's a challenge for any parent. And, and I it's it's an ideal. But do I achieve that every day? No. Do I achieve that <laughs> um, throughout every day? Absolutely not. Uh, if I'm tired, if I'm vulnerable for strong, if there are the various things that put us at risk for having stronger emotions, not sleeping well, not eating well, things that often are impacted by having a young child too, it is really, really hard. And there's many days I ask myself, how does anyone raise a child at all? Like, I feel like with all the advantages I have in my life, I'm barely holding it together. How is it that across the universe, we've, we've still continued to propagate children? Because <laughs> it's so hard to do these things. But I think it's still a worthy thing to continue to try, even if you, even if it doesn't work 100% of the time and you fail at it here and there, it doesn't mean, okay, just give up on that strategy altogether. You know, I think if you're getting the message across, if you're mirroring that emotion for the child, most of the time, um, they'll get that message. And it's not, yes, it's not going to be perfect. There'll be times when you are just saying, just shut up and stop. I don't want to deal with this right now. But as long as that isn't the kind of typical knee-jerk always response, I think with parenting, it looks to me, having done it, it's a little bit more like, you try to get high percentages of good behaviors with your with your children, but you don't you're never going to get it perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for sharing. I, I do think it's really important to to be honest about kind of vulnerabilities in parenting. Yeah, now that it is hard, I think it's very valuable. And especially someone yeah, from your background, with your knowledge, it's still still hard, still hard. And and what about if we perhaps our parents weren't able to do that for us when we were children? How can we do that for ourselves as adults? It's really challenging. In many ways, that is the challenge of clinical psychology is to, for adults, for adults, is to, is to say, you learned one thing when you were a child, that the types of behaviors you had and the reactions you had to your parents and other important people in your childhood, you were probably doing the best you could in that situation. Like whatever you did, however you decided to react to that situation was probably the best that you could do in that moment. And then now you're thrust into this new world and now those, those people are less relevant to your life and you have new friends and new romantic relationships and 
new work experiences and colleagues. And unfortunately, those early behaviors that we learned are still the path of least resistance for how we're going to react in our modern world. It's like you take, you change the context. Um, someone who's learned that the best way to get their parent to stop harassing them is to scream at them because the parent backs down. They're likely, to, that's just the impulse you're going to have as an adult to scream at somebody else because it worked before. Your body's just built to start to do that again. So to, to undo that, it just, unfortunately, it does take time and practice and and really one of the biggest tools we have as humans is this huge part of our brain that other animals don't have that gives us awareness and cognitive control over our behaviors that we're not purely just automatically responding to everything, that we can take some um, self-determination and control. And so trying to be aware of, you know, the first step of, of all these things is certainly to be aware of your emotional experiences, to notice that you are angry, to notice that you are sad. And with that information, you can sort of detach from it and then give yourself advice and, and consider what direction you want to go with that. I am angry. Does that mean I want to yell at this person? And maybe the answer is yes, but at least you're choosing to do that rather than just being this automatic process. Yeah, I'm really sad. Does that mean I want to stay in and not call anybody and not talk to anybody and not, you know, if you do want to do that, at least you've decided that. But it also gives you the chance to say, even though it's hard, I want to do something different. And so slowly, I do think, unfortunately, it's a slow process, uh, chipping away gradually over time. But you can develop new habits and new patterns. And I've seen it happen for many people, many, 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 many people that through efforts and, and awareness and consistent just changes in their behavior, you start to chip away at a new path and, and it becomes easier to go down that route. You just sort of, you know, that term of like being stuck in a rut is it is very like literal sometimes in the way that we respond to situations that we're in this this little rut and we have to kind of carve out slowly but surely a new path so we don't just get stuck on that same one we've been on. So stopping, being aware, a bit of breathing coming. And can we talk about anger? You mentioned anger and I think it's still so much more acceptable in men than it is in women and girls and and how this might be a problem because we all experience these emotions. There's not shame in experiencing the emotions but it's how we express them and what we do with them. So what, what do we do about anger in women and girls. Yeah, anger is a really tough one. And I think you hit the nail on the head in that anger, especially as we as uh, we socialize men to see anger as somehow an acceptable emotion. You see for men that a lot of emotions get expressed as anger. And sometimes we call that a secondary emotion because the primary emotion might be sadness, but they've been taught through parents and, and, and movies and whatever else that they shouldn't be sad, that men shouldn't be sad. And so feeling sadness and realizing you're feeling that way and you're not supposed to might add on shame, but it certainly can add on anger. You're angry at yourself. You're angry at the world for making you that way. And so anger is what comes out when underlying that is, is a sadness. That's And so I, w I wish I had an answer for how to solve that because it, partly it's a societal problem that it's, you know, transcends psychology into a sociology of how cultures influence us um, and that psychological parts of it could be when one person comes and says, I want to be less angry, then we can talk about that. But to try to make that larger social change is going to take something else altogether. It's like a cultural shift. And a, and um, I don't I don't have the answers for that one. Sorry. <laughs> I think it's almost as though sort of on the shelf, we need men to reach for kind of sad and women to reach for anger when they are. I, I spoke to the, um, the tier professor, Ad Vingerhoots from, um, from the Netherlands, who said, 
that you know the statistics that women do cry more than men and that's because more women are likely to weep out of frustration around conflict because they feel powerless and cannot cannot express that anger which I found so interesting you think oh goodness yes most of the time if I cry it is it is a frustration of course there are those times when you're profoundly sad but actually men and women cry the same amount to to really about really sad things but in terms of anger and frustration Mm. more women resort to tears because that's what we've been told is acceptable that sounds that's I, I don't know that research specifically but it sounds uh similar to other things that i've seen it's with anger again i think if a person decides i want to be less angry then there are ways of doing that if you decide that you want your partner to be less angry that's going to be a much much harder task you know i think when someone puts their mind to saying i want to do things to be less angry some of the things are so so much in the culture we know about counting the 10 and that kind of thing but really that's all about giving space and not reacting quickly uh, where anger can often be you know spontaneous and and be a, a burst of of anger there if it's someone sort of stewing over something just you know on their own that can be handled with distraction and what we might call opposite action you know if you're angry at someone and you don't want to be do something nice for that person uh, like by making yourself do something to send them a, a friendly email or something it just sort of un- it, it reverses the course you, you're forcing yourself to, to do the opposite of what you're feeling but anger is a hard one and in fact i think even psychology has struggled to capture anger we don't have an anger disorder we have a sadness disorder depression we have lots of anxiety disorders we don't have really an anger disorder despite the fact that we know anger has all sorts of toxic uh, consequences in the world um, we haven't really pinpointed it at to, to sort of one cause or one thing. Frustration is sort of one of the big, when something stands in the way of something you want, anger will come out. And that's about, you know, that's that's so blunt, but that's kind of what, the way we view it. So, okay, the big question then, the Pixar film Inside Out, I think that's where I first came across your work when you were quoted in in a piece when that came out. How how much of that did they get right with, you know, the, the imaginative portrayal of the five emotions of fear, disgust, anger, sadness and joy? For anyone who hasn't seen it, one person in the world, all all jockeying for the limelight inside the head of Riley, the main character. What did they get right, do you think? I think they got a a lot right overall. I think I I, um, I I haven't seen it now in a while, so it might be fading a little bit. But I I know they got a a lot right. And when I really, uh, one of the things that stuck out to me about it was that they, um, the transition they made of sadness. In the beginning of that film, you're watching it and sadness is kind of a drag, right? Sadness is bringing down the fun of the movie and is the Debbie Downer uh, kind of character who's just pointing out the downside of everything. And you just don't want that person around. You don't want that feeling around. And so they do a good job of just like rallying the audience maybe against the sadness character only to then sort of flip it on on you when uh, there's a scene where I'm going to wax poetic about a character named Bing Bong. But, you know, uh, when one of the characters, Bing Bong, has lost something and he's he's sad and joy, since each of the you know emotion characters can really only operate in their own emotional state, joy's best strategy is to jump up and down, say, let's go, it's okay, come on, let's go, it's going to sell it, we can, we can move on and do the other fun things, and it isn't really changing anything for for Bing Bong. And Sadness uh, sort of walks over and slumps down next to him and, and says, you know, that's really awful that that happened to you. I'm really sad that that happened. It makes me sad too. Now we're, now we're both sad about this. 
And they kind of sit there for a moment, shrug their shoulders and sigh. And then then they can stand up and move forward. It's sort of, you know, the other thing about sadness is that it's a social, like all of our emotions, but the social part of sadness is it's asking others to come to our support. It's saying, not only am I stuck and need to be creative with all of my rumination, but every when you see someone who's sad, the impulse is to go over and put your arm around them and talk to them and try to make it better. And so it's not only is it saying, I'm going to try to problem solve this. It's saying, hey, and maybe I can rally other people as well. And we're all going to problem solve this. And we're all going to talk about this and share this experience. And so I think it, the movie then sort of shows the way that sadness has that, the community almost of sadness that can help to digest it and move forward rather than just distracting away from it and, and ignoring it. It's about owning it, feeling it, even sharing sadness as a way to digest it, process it, move forward in life. And I really appreciate the way the movie did that. Yeah, that's so nice. And I know as well that the memories, the idea of reframing memories, I was really surprised that this is also a little bit true the way they did that. So being able to recognize that our memories aren't just good or bad, but can have different sides to them. Can you speak a little bit about that? Well, we, we often see emotions as like, we talk about maybe rose-colored glasses, but we, I think sometimes the science of emotion takes that to another level to say, really, each when we're in an emotional state, we're wearing that corresponding state's glasses. So if you want to think of sadness as glasses as blue and happiness is as orange or whatever, the same event, the same memories can be seen. If we're, if we are currently in a, a negative, a sad state, we're going to see, we're going to look back on our lives and, and all the things that pop out are the things that are negative. Even negative aspects of a given situation are the ones that are highlighted. And then if we're in a different emotional state, we might look at our life or certainly even at those same moments and suddenly different aspects of that memory are highlighted. You know, it's all the same event, but things in the world are complex complex and um sometimes something that happens absolutely like in like you said in the in the film a bad event can lead to a positive next thing that happens and and what we attend to you know even if if life is a series of mountains and valleys we can look back and see all the valleys the downtimes or we can look back and see all the the mountains and it can often just depend on where we are in the current moment which part of that cycle we're really viewing they all share experiences. You don't get to the mountain without having gone through the valley, but you also don't get to the next valley for having not been on that mountain. So it's, it's just a, it's a organic thing, and and how we decide to, um, it's not even decide. It's just what pops out as we reflect on our lives is often gated on our current emotional state rather than some true. You know, we're not playing back our life like a movie where all the facts are right there to review. We just see selectively the things that come out based on what our, how we're currently feeling and what we're currently thinking about. I think it's so interesting that nothing is clear, clear cut and there is nuance and there are gray areas in a way that in the US and the UK, we are not terribly comfortable with, I would say. I did a lot of research into different cultural approaches to emotion. And, you know, I think the US are, are outliers in, in terms of um, an aversion to sadness and a, and a desire to yeah, pursue happiness. Whereas, you know, in East Asian cultures, you can look at there is much more of an acceptance of feeling happy and sad at the same time. And I wonder, we talked a little bit about, and I spoke to many historians of, of emotions and sadness, about the history of our feelings towards our feelings, which is a strange sort of meta state of affairs. But I know that, that you have some ideas about the reluctance to feel sad um, has almost a historical perspective, maybe from the baby boomers generation, this emphasis on protecting the ego. I wonder if you can talk a little about that. 
I think especially came out in at when baby boomers were became parents. Um, I think in that era, in particular, for baby boomers, a lot of their parents were went through World War II era, and that was a dark time. With you know, as much as we might look back and think about this sort of heroic war heroes who came back and the women who supported and and all this that the whole world rallied around this thing and, it, and it's often portrayed very upbeat. The reality is it was that it was death was a commonplace life and losing young people. Every town was touched by it. It was really a, a sad and traumatic period. There's no reason to think that, you know, that PTSD or other traumatic experiences from World War II are different than Vietnam or something else. And so, but that it, that generation um, sort of clamped down. And so they're, yes, uh, we, we can talk about the greatest generation and what happened, but often as parents, they were very emotionally closed off because that was the protective strategy for getting through an era where anyone at any moment could die. You had to close it all down and try to not sh- you know, not go very emotional. So you had baby boomers who um, were raised with parents who were often, you know, like iron boxes. And then they wanted to, as often a pendulum, they wanted to, they kind of felt like it should be the opposite. And so in the 80s, 90s, you see this big spawn of self-esteem movement of saying, well, what we should do with our children is really try to protect as you said, protect the ego, protect uh, people from feeling negative emotions, try to prevent negative emotions, especially when it comes to competition, feeling less than, feeling, um, yeah, like worse than this, your your co-student. And so in the most cliche part of that, it would be things like participation awards for, you know, they have a soccer tournament, they don't keep score, everyone gets a participation medal, there's no uh, sense of one team is winning or losing, every parent gets a, a bumper sticker that says, my child is an honor student at blank elementary school or something. You know, these types of um, things were are sort of cliche at this point, but we're all intended with certainly good intention, we all had good intentions trying to prevent individuals from feeling like they're not worthy or, or less than. But there has been a shift, as is probably obvious as I'm describing it, kind of to say, well, maybe that went too far. Or it wasn't really achieving what it was intended to do. And that having discomfort, having negative emotions might play an important role at, at some level. It might be not wonderful, again, it might not the most pleasant thing to think about, but negative emotions serve a purpose, which is to diminish the likelihood we do. If you do something and it makes you feel sad, you're probably going to be less likely to do that thing, or you'll try to find ways to not have the same outcome occur. And so, it again, in that same sense that it creates adaptive qualities in people, it's sometimes important to go through sadness. It's sometimes important to go through pain, um, because from those experiences, we develop new strategies that help us cope better in the world. Um, and so just trying to stave off all pain isn't necessarily the most effective way to create a, an adult that can manage all the stresses of adulthood very well. But we don't love to see our kids in pain. I'm not advocating we <laughs> administer pain to children, but the overprotectionism, I think, is starting to to wane a little bit, but into what is not always clear. Okay, and I wonder how do you personally cope with feeling sad now? What What helps you? I think knowing that knowing that it ends, just having that knowledge. One thing I did in when I was younger, um, when I was in high school or so, I would keep journals. You know, I call, I'm a as a a man. It was hard. I couldn't say it was a diary. It was a journal, right? But it was a diary. Um, so I, I and I would, for some reason, 
after filling up a notebook, I would go back over it, all the pages, and I'd sort of create a graph of my mood to see where, you know, just sort of like, where did it go from here to here? And at the end, so on the back of each journal, I have this little up and down curve that kind of highlights, was this a good 80 days or a bad 80 days or whatever, however long the journal was. And I think doing that, I didn't intend to do it this way, but doing that helped me recognize that ebb and flow of mood that when I was feeling bad, it would feel like it would be forever. It really, in the moment, it felt like this is just the way it's always going to be. And when I was feeling good, honestly, felt the same way. Like this will never stop. And seeing it, realizing it goes up and down in that way, even though it seems like you can say that and it's obvious, just visually mapping out my days did help me to say, if I'm in a down place, it's likely often through ways I have no way of controlling or knowing why it's gonna change, but that it will it will get better. And and so I think partly that, that message that I took back then, which helped me cope then, is still there. And that if I'm feeling in a sad place, I know it's very likely to get better. If it goes on too long, again, as someone who's a clinical psychologist, I know that if it's lasting weeks and months, um, then that's something where you might need additional support. But in those moments, um, knowing that it's likely to end through whatever causes um, is a good thing. How do you make it end? I mean, I think relying on the people around you, uh, relying on the friends you know who help in those moments. I'm fine with distraction. Um, I think it's fine to distract away from things that tend to go away on their own. Some people would say, oh, distraction is just ignoring the problems or something. Well, some things that do need to be coped with um, in that you need to take, you know, try to take action, but some things kind of go away on their own or turn out to not be as big if you just wait a little bit. So finding ways to distract yourself, whether that's through your work or play or whatever else, can actually be a good way of dealing with a lot of things. Not everything, but a lot of things. Do you still journal? Oh, I don't. I wish that I did. I don't. Um, I stopped in college. Occasionally I would write every once in a while, but I not the sort of almost daily journaling I was doing. Um, so I have this great historical document of my high school years and then very spotty after that. But uh, it, was seemed, it seemed like it served a purpose in that moment in many ways. And though I would still love to do it, I actually somewhat journal for my son as it like I have written a little bit things I don't want to forget about what he's doing now or like what he's what's funny to me or what he did in a certain time. And so I do write down like some short notes and it's in a little notebook that has like his life as he's grown. He's my three year old son. But uh, no, not me. <laughs> it's just too hard. There's so many things to do. <laughs> I understand. No, I understand. And I wonder whether my, my final question, I always like to end by asking, knowing all you know now, what advice you would give to your 21-year-old self about how to be sad well? Although it sounds like your 21-year-old self was doing pretty well with your graphs. I love the sound of the graphs. <laughs> well, yeah. My, I, what I would say is... Um... Well, by the time I was 21, I had stopped journaling. Though the messages were, that I'd taken from that were still there, I think, for me. But I would say that to my 21 self, I would say, let things go away, if that makes sense. Let things that have served their purpose or are, have been proven to not be good for you or make you, make you happy or, or consistently do make you sad, let them go away. I think I had a hard time with ending friendships, ending romantic relationships, ending activities even that, you know, maybe at one time were very positive, but then no longer were, but some, something in me felt like I should hold on to everything. And 
Um, maybe it's not a coincidence. This is so, you know somewhat coincides with the the time of face the rise of Facebook and the rise of Friendster before that. Um, use these social networking with, that almost demands never letting go of anything because it's like if once a friend you you know it's actually like a a, a major decision to decide to defriend somebody. Later on in my life, somewhat by force and by the influences of other people, really was pushed to say, just let some things go away. Let some things fade away into your past and become the past. Let the past become the past, not hold on to it and just make it be like, oh, maybe it will once again be the present or something. Just let it go. And I think that um, I would say that to myself then uh, of say, I, I think I could have gotten more out of my current life had I been not sort of living it's funny because a 20 year old living in the past means living like a year or two before but i think i was often doing that you know wait sort of wasting time obsessing about things that had already come and gone essentially and, and thinking somehow i would pull this out of the fire and keep moving and keeping this relationship or keeping this activity in my life so i think that that's what i, what I would say is it's okay to just free up space to do new things and have a new experience and follow the things that you like now and still retain all the memories and enjoyment of the things that you did before. Let the past be the past. I think that is fine advice. Thank you so much, Nathaniel. A real pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How to Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care.